Please be seated. Good evening to you. Exodus chapter 16. While we're turning there, a couple of announcements. Leland concert coming up this Friday, uh, 7 o'clock, and uh, doors will open at 6. Uh, Still some flyers out there on the information counter to grab and be able to invite kind of this last week uh, loved ones and friends and family members and all to come on out. God uses music so much and and, uh, the message being carried by the music and it should be a great night and we'd sure like to see a lot of people uh, head into the right side of eternity as they would uh, come to know the Lord that night. Be in prayer for the concert also for uh, Leland this week. Always a great deal of warfare surrounding that kind of thing. Also be aware that there's refreshments. We kind of put together some you know, specialty coffees and some seating out underneath the uh, shade structure outside in the, in the courtyard that you can partake of and they're fairly priced and, and uh, different things that you can get and enjoy fellowship after the service and all. Some of you mentioned, uh, you know, something about, uh, by the way, the, other, there's, the free coffee is still available in the fellowship hall. So, um, but some of you asked about a name related to that. Well, we don't have any name. We didn't quite think of that. So if you come up with a good name, you can let us know. And if your name wins, we'll give you 10, 10 cents off your coffee for... Uh, two weeks and uh, but you know I mean you don't want to we want you to have a pure motive uh, for why you would do this not for filthy lucre and covetousness and that kind of thing there was uh, one person came up with the idea was trying to you know as they were talking about it out the the coffee counter thing out there they suggested Blackwater Cafe because of the whole coffee angle and stuff but he wasn't a coffee drinker so it was it was derisive it was just mean spirited I didn't I didn't like it at all and all I actually did like the title but uh, we're not going to use it just because we want coffee drinkers to uh, to name this all right well here we are in uh, Exodus chapter 16 and uh, the immediate past of the children of Israel kind of picking up their history here tonight their immediate past has included a deliverance by God of them out of the bondage of Egypt uh, by way of uh, ten incredible miracles uh, slash plagues then having been redeemed from Egypt they crossed the Red Sea on dry land uh, God then following that great miracle with the uh, drowning of the Egyptian army, their uh, enemies, and following that great uh, work of the Lord, there was a celebration, the first recorded song uh, in the Bible, Exodus chapter 15, as they just celebrated how good God had been to them, came to a place called Mara where the water was bitter. God again steps in on their behalf and uh, miraculously causes the bitter water not only to be drinkable, but to make it actually very, very sweet uh, for them. So they're coming out of a chapter and season very early in their Christian life, so to speak, in which it's just been one miracle after uh, another. And uh, so we pick it up now in chapter 16, verse 1. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. So it gives us a little bit of a timing. They've been out of Egypt now for a total of 30 days. And it's been a very, very eventful uh, 30 days. And then the whole congregation, now that's a lot of people, 
talking about two to three million uh, people, uh, probably not every single one, but it's talking about, you know, largely the whole group. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses uh, and Aaron in the wilderness. And here's their complaint. The children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Whoa. Wow. I mean, talk about thankless. They had been praying and groaning and asking God to deliver them from the bondage of Egypt. And now, here they hit something where as they look at it, is it, oh, we, it's been just as well as if God had, you know, killed us with the Egyptian in, uh, Egyptians in uh, Egypt. It's really staggering that they would say that. Again, given, I mean, the, um, how wonderful their immediate history has been, how God has just taken care of them one step uh, after another. So, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord and the land of Egypt. This is what they're longing for. This is what they're, you know, asking for. When we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So now they're getting a little bit hungry, and they turn now on, on Moses here, and, uh, and they just said, it, it, they accuse him of now bring, bringing them out of Egypt now in order to kill them uh, with hunger. Actually cry out to the Lord. It would have been better if we'd remained slaves and died in Egypt. I mean, the ingratitude and the carnality is, is just outrageous. And their God is their belly. They esteem a full belly of food higher than God's will for their lives, His plan for them as a people, uh, more important than all the things that He had just done for them, more important than their witness uh, before the whole world. And so that's what they were concerned about. Things are hard, and they want, some, they want food, they want a full belly, they want ease. That's more important to them than, than the uh, will of God for their lives. And if they can't have this, then count us out. We want to go back into Egypt. Now, the, the memory is very interesting how, um, you know, what's the old saying? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Get a little time separation from a hard kind of situation that we were in, and we can become revisionists in terms of history and look back upon where we once were in life and we once begged God to bring us out of this and now we can look back at it and smack our lips and begin to talk about it as, as, as if that was the greatest season in my life or in our life in light, in light of the immediate hardship that we find ourselves in. Like God's really going to bring them out. He goes through all of that, ten gigantic plagues over a period of nine to twelve months to get them out. He says, I just wanted to get you out here to watch you die of starvation in the wilderness. I mean, it's inconsistent with anything God had done in their lives before. These are people who have a history with God. They have a history with God. You and I have a history with God. What has He been to us? What has He been, had he been to them all the way along here? And then now they're acting like He's not going to continue uh, to be that uh, in, in their lives. So sure, maybe they had more to eat in Egypt. And they looked at it and, you know, we had this meat and we had this bread. We could eat it to the full and all of that. But you were slaves. 
You were slaves in Egypt. What's more important, to be free and a little bit hungry by faith and following a God that's promised He's going to give us food, or to have a full belly and live in the world that's set aside for plagues and, and, and the slavery and the bondage of Egypt. This is kind of where, where they are on, on things. And they look back longingly on Egypt. They says, say something about Egypt. We came out of Egypt. We begged God to bring us out of Egypt. This is a miserable place. And any time we begin to think back on our old life or our old ways related to Egypt and, and we start to think fondly of it, we, our, our brain is playing tricks on us. Twicks. Serious tricks. There's nothing back there for us. It is not even an option for those people to go back. It is not an option for us to go back. It was bad when we left, that's why we left, and it's even worse uh, now. And, and so here is this complaining and all. They accuse Moses of Aaron, you've let us out into this situation, and, and we're going to die of starvation. Now here's a problem. The problem is, is that Moses and Aaron is, are not leading the children of Israel. They are in kind of a secondary sense. But God is leading them. Pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. They are where they are in the will of God. This complaint is a complaint against God. And, and God's going to take it that way. And Moses is going to inform them of, of the fact that, that they uh, uh, do that. And this is a, going to become a pattern. It already is in their lives of complaining against God every time things don't go their way. And they do worse than complain. It's like the Christian who God has done all of these wonderful things for. And then when the first thing God allows hard in our life, we threaten him that if he doesn't fix this and fix this fast, we're going back to Egypt. We're going back to the world. And that's not a game we want to play with God. God will be patient because he's, he is, he is uh, kind of nurturing a relationship with them at this point. He knows they're kind of new Christians. But there'll come a time when he is going to be mightily offended by this kind of, of an attitude, and it's going to bring judgment on them. And so this is what they do. You've brought us out to kill us here. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota of this bread every day that I may test them uh, whether uh, they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So here he, he communicates to, to Moses, Moses, I, I know this is an unfair kind of situation that's going on, but I am going to supply the people with food. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. I'm going to supernaturally uh, provide for them. And he told them it would be every single day. I'm going to provide for them day by day, one day at a time. There will be a certain quota that they can take every day. Each day the people were just to take enough bread for that day. Seems kind of weird. Why would he do that? God's doing a couple things here. It's not like just, you know, he kind of had a thought about that. He is, again, nurturing a personal relationship with them. They are growing in a relationship with him. And so what he's doing here in, in all of this is he's building a daily dependence upon the Lord. 
so that they will have to learn to trust in him one day uh, at a time and thus learn that he is faithful to supply our needs one day at a time. And oftentimes that's how God does it. Sometimes we get all anxious. Because I like it a month at a time. Just give me a thir- I like a 30-day buffer on most things like that. It helps my planning. Not, I, I've got as much faith as anybody, God, but it helps me just to plan, you know, and that kind of thing. And the Lord's into this one day at a time kind of thing. And, and that's what he's doing, just developing that kind of, of a relationship with him. And I think one of the things that that does is it helps us to recognize the miracle that's in every day. You know, I have, I have uh, and God, Jesus does the same thing in our lives. Remember, he taught the disciples to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Every single meal that I pray for, I am conscious of the miracle that that food is. And thankful I can pray over it for any deadly poison, for anything that's come in from China. But there's just that, even though there's food in the cupboard and there's food in the refrigerator and all that kind of thing, Lord, thank you for the miracle that this food is, that we're just about to partake of. And I, love, I just love the daily of life and, and to recognize it and walk with him on that daily, daily kind of, of basis. Because then you notice the little things and the daily provision that he brings into our lives. And it's noticing the little things in life that are, are so special. Having clothes to wear. Having a car to drive. If we have a car uh, to drive. Uh, having, you, you know, uh, some place to wash the clothes if, if, we, if we have a washer and dryer in the house. All these little things that are really big things and, and uh, dishes to wash and these kinds of things that we recognize as daily uh, blessings. Now, he tells them to take it, uh, this manna, uh, each and every day and uh, that the uh, uh, whole thing, uh, the, the means of him supplying it this way in in end of verse 4, that I may test them whether they walk in my law or not. So God is doing this day-by-day provision in order to test them to see if they would believe him to provide it every single day uh, for them or not. And, and if, they, if, if they obeyed God in this, it was an evidence of their faith in him. If they disobeyed, tried to store up a month's worth of the food, then they didn't trust in, in him. So he told them there, verse 5, on, on the day before the Sabbath there, gather twice as much, and uh, while this manna is going to rot, you know, uh, if you try to keep it more than one day, any of the other days of the week before the Sabbath, uh, it, this stuff is going to uh, miraculously keep for two days so that the Sabbath can be a day of, of rest, a Saturday for them. Now, it's interesting, this manna is uh, biblically a type or a picture of Jesus. Uh, Jesus speaks uh, continually in, in the book of John, John chapter 6 and several places and all. And he applies this Old Testament event uh, concerning the manna uh, to himself, declaring himself to be the bread of life. In the same way that God provided for the physical needs of the children of Israel through this physical bread, Jesus came on the scene and declared himself to be heaven's provision 
of daily bread for the spiritual needs of, of mankind. Uh, and so he, Jesus revealed that all of this about the manna, all of it is kind of an Old Testament picture or shadow uh, of, of him when he was going to come. Now, interesting ways in which this is a type or an example of him. The manna came from heaven. So it came down from heaven, even as Jesus came down from heaven, as the Bible teaches. For the bread of life, the bread of God, John 6:33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, Jesus speaking of himself, and gives life to the world. So Jesus is that bread that satisfies man's spiritual hunger. A failure to eat the manna resulted in physical death. And in the same way, sinners must believe in Jesus, partake of him, invite him into their heart to receive life, everlasting life, and a failure to do so that leads to everlasting life. And then once we are saved, uh, as we fellowship with Jesus, as we're nourished by him, strengthened by him in our daily relationship uh, with him, that's a part of the walk. The manna fell in the wilderness just as Jesus strengthens us in the spiritual wilderness of this world. The manna came to a rebellious people just as Jesus uh, came into the world to save a rebellious uh, people, as Romans chapter 5 brings out, Paul speaking of it, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, but God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, this is, here is God speaking to Moses, telling him what he's going to do. And then, verse 6, Moses and Aaron said to all of the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. You say, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I couldn't have gotten you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord brought you out of the land of Egypt. You're not complaining against me. You're complaining against him. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? And also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning, bread to the full, for the Lord hears your complaints which you make against Him. And what are we? Uh, uh, your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Now, the interesting thing about complaints, and all of us have kind of different personalities and different strengths and weaknesses, sins that we're prone to, and there's a certain kind of person who is a complainer. That is their, the kind of prevailing sin that they have to deal with. They can walk, uh, they can, uh, walk into a scene that is uh, just the side of perfection, and they'll complain about it on things. And the problem with complaining as a child of God is, number one, it is always to complain against the Lord because He's the one that orders my steps. He's the one that puts me in the different circumstances in life. So to complain is to do more than complain about the circumstance. It is to complain against Him. And it's a reflection on Him. And when people that don't know the Lord hear Christians complaining about their circumstances, what they do is then, and they're free to do it, come to the conclusion that that person's God cannot keep even his own people happy. Why would I want him for a God? And, and so it does damage and it turns people away from the Lord. The other thing is, is that God hears complaining when it's leveled against him. He listens to it. And, and he doesn't uh, care 
care for it. And then Moses spoke to Aaron, uh, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now this is the third time <laughs> Moses is telling them uh, this. Uh, you know, now Aaron is going to tell them this. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. So it's daytime. This uh, cloud by day that's leading them takes on an even more kind of supernatural element to it. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. He hears it. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp. All right, meat, protein. Sure enough, God was true to his word. And then in the morning the dew lay all around uh, the camp. And so now they've got this uh, provision of food in the morning as God had promised. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on uh, the ground. And uh, so God makes this promise and uh, there is the appearance now uh, of this bread. It's all over the surface of, of the ground. Notice the description of it there in, uh, in verse 14. Small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. And all of it's a picture of Jesus. It was small and, uh, and, and heaven sent. So it's a picture of Jesus' humility and his incarnation coming into the world from heaven as a tiny baby. It was round, and round, of course, we give wedding, ring, wedding rings in, in, in the wedding ceremonies because it's a picture of e eternity, and I'm committing myself. Uh, it has no beginning, has no end, committing myself eternally to the person that I'm, I'm married forever and ever, that, that kind of thing. So here it is, it's round, even as Jesus came from heaven, as the eternal uh, God. And then notice it fell right where the people were. They didn't have to, Moses didn't come out and say, all right, there's manna up at the top of that mountain and you've got to crawl on your hands and knees over stony steps to get up there and uh, partake uh, of the manna in order to be saved. No, that salvation was brought close to them. Just like Jesus has done for us. All they had to do is go right outside and take it. Paul speaks in Romans chapter 10 of, of salvation. He said uh, concerning how near it is, how easy and close it is for anyone to be saved. But what does it say? The word, that is the word of salvation, is near you even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now notice in verse 15, as they see this now for the first time, so when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? They'd never seen anything like this before. They said, what is it? And that's what manna means. It's going to come to be named manna. That's what manna means. What is it? So it's like the first thing out of somebody's mouth is what they ended up naming uh, the stuff. So what is it? Hadn't seen anything like this before. Not in Egypt, not anywhere. For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. And this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. So the bread was supplied to them, but you had to go out and partake of it yourself. No one was forced. 
If you wanted to stay in the tent, say, I'm not eating that. I don't believe in it. It's not out there. And, and just starve to death in the tent. He had complete freedom to do that, to reject God's provision for physical hunger. But it's the same thing true of the spiritual hunger. A person can look at Jesus, the provision for the forgiveness of our sins, and say, I'm not eating that. And starve to death spiritually and end up spiritually uh, damned for it. So here's the thing. Jesus never forces himself on anyone. Never forces himself on anyone. They made a choice whether they would gather of that, that manna, that heavenly bread, and then partake uh, of it. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take uh, for those that are in his tent. And then the children of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. And an omer is about a little less than two quarts. Uh, in, in terms of how much they were eating each day. And so they measured it by omers. And he who gathered much had nothing left over. He who gathered little had no lack. Every man uh, had gathered according to each one's uh, need. And so there is their obedience. And never, notwithstanding, not everybody obeyed. They did not heed Moses, but some uh, of them left part of it until morning. And it bred worms and it stank. And Moses was uh, angry with them. I mean, stank is such a wonderful word. It's so English way of uh, uh, putting the thing. So, so here is Moses had commanded them, listen, you take it and you need to eat it, eat it all of it that day. Do not keep any of it till the next day. Why would you keep it till the next day? Because you didn't trust that God would provide it the next day. It's a faith issue. They didn't believe that God would provide for them every day. And God is putting them in a place where they must trust in Him every day in, in nurturing that, that relationship. And, and so here it is. They, he commanded none of it was to be left. They disobeyed. They bred worms. I mean, just overnight, worms in it. It stank. Moses got, got angry uh, because they, of their lack uh, of, of faith. God only gave them one restriction. <laughs> Don't leave any till the morning. And they even disobeyed that. Now, spiritually, as its application to us as a, as a typology, we cannot live off of yesterday's fellowship with Jesus. Can't live off of yesterday. Otherwise, our rotting, stinking, wormy flesh nature comes out and uh, complete with, with accompanying uh, stank. Listen, you ever, um, it's kind of like saying, all right, I'm going to take a shower today and I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to lather up and rinse off uh, three times so I don't have to do this for three days. <laughs> you know, doesn't work. Or, in the spiritual sense, um, uh, take, uh, ever try to do this? Where you get up and say, all right, I'm going to have a busy week this week, so this morning I'm going to spend three times uh, longer with the Lord this morning in my quiet time and everything, so I don't have to do it the next two days. What happens? Second and third day, stinkorama. In terms of the flesh just coming out and the whole... It's a day-by-day. Day. It's a day-by-day day partaking 
uh, in, in this way uh, and, and because it, it, it doesn't work in this store-up kind of, of, a, of a fashion here. So he was angry with them, and so they gathered, verse 21, every morning they gathered, every man according to his need, and when the sun came out, it melted. And so again, a beautiful picture of how we need to feed upon uh, Jesus, receiving the bread, the spiritual nourishment that he is to us before the uh, events of the day heat up. And days do heat up, don't they? And so meeting with him uh, while that fresh manna is available uh, to us. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is the Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So cook it today so that you don't have to cook it tomorrow. So apparently this manna, whatever it was, very versatile food. You could bake it, you could uh, boil it, and uh, do some different kind of things with it. So they laid it all up until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, even though it was kept the two days. Again, just the miracle of God associated with it, nor were there any worms in it. And then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the Sabbath day to gather it, but they found none. And they're still not taking God's commandments seriously about this. They were told to take twice as much. There's not going to be any provided on the Sabbath. And here they are. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man come out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel uh, called its name manna. So that's what it's called, manna. It means, what is it? And it was, uh, uh, and here's a description, a further description of it. And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So maybe uh, nut and honey Cheerios kind of a thing. Well, probably something uh, a little bit uh, better than that. So, but what we do know is it's, uh, it, it came in thin flakes. It was white, speaking of Jesus' purity. tasted like wafers made with honey. We don't know much more about it than that, except that it had to be very, very nutritious because it kept them alive for 40 years while they wandered uh, in, in, the, uh, in the wilderness. And so uh, this was the provision. This is what it, the thing actually looked like. And then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it. And omer is, is one person portion, a little less than two quarts, to be kept for your generations that, it may, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so they were to take a one person portion of it uh, put it in uh, to a container. He, Book of Hebrews tells us it went into a golden, a golden pot and then uh, that pot was going to be placed in, in the Ark of the Covenant in order that that would be in the Ark of the Covenant and for all the generations the children of Israel could look at the, you know, physically what the, 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 their, 
the people in their history had eaten for 40, uh, for 40 years. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron kept it up before the testimony, uh, to laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Now it talks about the testimony. That's referring to the Ten Commandments that God's going to give to Moses just in a few chapters. And they had the Ark of the Covenant. We'll get to this a little bit later in the law. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant, there were three things inside that Ark. There were the two tablets of the law uh, that God had given to Moses. There was Aaron's rod that budded. We'll talk about that in future weeks. And then there was also this golden pot that had the one-day portion of, uh, of the uh, manna that was in it. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came uh, to the land, uh, to an inhabited land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. And then the ch- all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim and there was no water for the people to drink. So that's a major trial now, isn't it? No water, two to three million people and, uh, and this is what they're in the middle of. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said to him, give us water that we may drink. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, where, how is one man going to... They still don't get it that they've got a God in this whole thing. Like one man can provide water for a hundred people, much less two to three million. So they come to him and they demand water of him. And so Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt uh, the, the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Talk about a thankless uh, position that Moses has with these people. I mean, it's, it's uh, really kind of, of laughable. But what they're... What they're doing is they're basically accusing him of, him of incompetence. I mean, you're leading us around and you can't even provide water for us. What kind of a leader uh, are you? And so uh, Moses takes it and, and now uh, he begins to confront them again with, with their uh, complaining and the poor reflection that is upon the Lord. So he cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, this is a serious situation. They're ready to kill him. Talk about, what have you done for me lately? You think your employer's rough. He he, he legitimately goes to the Lord in prayer and says, what are we going to do here? Because they're about to stone me to death in this situation. Talk about just carnal, carnal to the core on things. Now it's a good thing that Moses went to the Lord in prayer as a leader. You know why? Because he would have never thought that God was going to do what God did next. God is so much more patient so often than any of us in a given circumstance. And so he might have thought, 
Lord, it's time to just humble these people and, you know, take a million out or something, uh, kind of a a deal and all. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, also take in your hand your rod which you struck the river. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock in Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so, and the sight of the elders of uh, Israel. And so God gives Moses the command, and, uh, and he goes forth, and, and he obeys it. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that that rock uh, represents Jesus. It's a type or a picture of the rock that Moses takes his staff, and he hits that rock, and the water uh, comes out of it. And, and he puts it this way, And all drank, speaking of the children of Israel, the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so when he smites that rock with, with his, his uh, staff there, uh, it's, that speaks of Jesus' death upon the cross, where like the rock, Jesus was smitten there. And so the image of the smitten rock, the, the smitten Messiah, even a part of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, yet we esteemed him, speaking of the Messiah, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now the interesting thing in terms of a typology of Jesus is Moses not only smites the rock as a picture of Jesus' crucifixion, but after he smites the rock, then water begins to flow out of it. And water from one end of the Bible to the other is used as a picture, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was smitten for our sins in order to provide us you know, with the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, uh, f- uh, for our lives and refreshment in this wilderness uh, journey that we're on. Jesus himself, in John chapter 7, uh, when they had the, the, it speaks of him in Jerusalem on the last and great day of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up in the middle of, of that feast and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being or his heart will flow or his belly will flow rivers of living water and what Jesus is doing is he's identifying there the water that came out of the rock with the person of the Holy Spirit the Feast of Tabernacles where he makes this particular uh, uh, proclamation is celebrating God's faithfulness to the children of Israel for the 40 years so Jesus is declaring the fact that he is going to be smitten uh, and, and crucified, but then out of that crucifixion is going to come the Holy Spirit, which John then says was not yet given until uh, Jesus was crucified. And so the whole picture was, was a symbol uh, of Jesus' uh, death for us and then the provision of, of the Holy Spirit for mankind. The imagery is very, very beautiful. In chapter 16, you have the manna speaking of Jesus uh, coming humbly into the world. Then in chapter 17, we see the smiting of the rock, which pictures Jesus uh, on the cross. And then out of that smiting, the provision of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had promised. This is why Moses gets in trouble a little bit later when the people are complaining about their thirst again. 
And uh, uh, Moses goes to the Lord, what do you want me to do here on this thing? And, and uh, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, I want you to go to the rock and speak to it. And Moses is just, he's had it with these people at that particular point in time, you can imagine. And uh, he takes his staff and he says, you know, how long will I put up with you, you rebels? I mean, he's just, re- and, and he's, the Bible says he's the meekest man in all of history, in all of the world, next to Jesus himself. But this group could work even that guy up. And uh, so he's just really upset. And he takes that staff and then he strikes the rock a second time. And the water comes forth. God's very gracious to provide the water for his people. And he's going to judge them for their complaining. He does that ultimately. But then God calls Moses aside. And because he smote the rock a second time, God said to him, "You, in his anger, you are not going to enter into the promised land. You will not take these people into the promised land. The reason is, is because again, he spoiled the imagery of the Old Testament. This being a picture of Jesus. The rock was to be smitten once. The second time, Moses was to speak to it. And then the water would come out. Jesus was crucified once. Now we only need to speak to him to have the provision of the Spirit and the things of him uh, into our, our lives. That is all there for the asking. So... This is kind of what's going on here in in all of that. And so the water is provided. And so he called the name of the place uh, Massa and Meribah. Massa meaning tempted. And uh, because it was a place where they tempted God. They tried his patience. Uh, Meribah means contention. And that was their attitude. They were contending with Moses. They were contending with God instead of living by faith and and living by prayer. And uh, so it was named because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying uh, is the Lord among us or not now the interesting thing is is that you look at it and say well okay it got named tempted in contention uh, but at least they got their water but you know we can be in the circumstances in life where we say well you know I mishandled that and I complained and I whined and I sniveled and I disrespected God and the whole thing and he came through and so that's all I care about but you know as we the next day or maybe sometime later as we grow in our relationship with the Lord what will become more important to us than the fact that he supplied for us physically in that circumstance is that we honored him in that circumstance so they'll be able to look back in their history and say yeah God provided for me there but it will always uh, be renamed uh, tempted and contention it will never God wanted it to be if they had responded in prayer and faith for them to look back and say and and have it be named this beautiful kind of thing and and, uh, beautiful names attached to it God's provision that look back and say wasn't that a great thing God did and that was just one of the sweetest experiences in my life and now you look back and say yeah he provided for me but boy it's not a very good memory because we didn't handle it very well so their actions kind of uh, you know overshadows uh, God's act there because they didn't quite do it the way that they were supposed to in other words not even remotely like they were supposed to and it's a good lesson for us now Amalek came 
And he fought with Israel in Rephidim. So the people of uh, Amalek, they attack Israel now. Uh, the Amalekites are, are the descendants of Amalek. Amalek is the grandson of Esau. Remember the brother of uh, Jacob, the guy that sold his birthright uh, for a bowl of red or a bowl of, of stew. So these are the descendants of, of Esau. And the Amalekites represent, in terms of biblical typology, because they come from their patriarch Esau, who lived for his belly, he lived for his flesh, he exalted the things of the flesh and his, his belly above the things of, the God, of God. So the Amalekites are a picture or a type of the flesh in, in the Bible. In the war that goes on between the spirit, the children of Israel inside of us, and the flesh. And there is a war that goes on, isn't there? Uh, the flesh wants to rise up and fight against what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do uh, in, our, in our lives. And uh, so here they are, a group of people that uh, take and put their physical appetites above everything else and, and, and a full belly above everything else, above God's will and, and all of these, these kinds of things. And they come and they attack now uh, the children of, of Israel here. So... Uh, Moses said to Joshua, first mention of Joshua, and he's going to fight a battle here, and uh, uh, he's going to ultimately lead the children of Israel into the promised land. But first mention of him here, right-hand man to Moses. So Moses said to him, choose us some men and go out, uh, fight with uh, Amalek, and tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And so that's the command that is uh, given to them. Now, very interesting to Joshua. It, very interesting that in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, we're told a little bit more about this attack that the Amalekites uh, come against Israel with. Very, very cowardly attack. They uh, attack their rear. They attack the stragglers in this kind of long line of pilgrims. And we're told that they attack the very young. They attack the very old and, and all. And it was a sneak attack and uh, attacking the, the tired and the weary and, and, and no fear of God in them, no, no conscience in doing it. It's put this way. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. And God is going to judge them harshly uh, later on for, for doing um, uh, that. And these Amalekites are going to learn that these children of Israel uh, have, have a God. Now it's interesting that up to this point God has kept them from battles. He's kept them from warfare. They weren't really ready for any battles yet. They've been redeemed from Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea. They've partaken of the manna. They've partaken of the water from the rock. Now they need to be trained in, in, in battle. In the same way uh, after we've been redeemed or born again, we've been water baptized, we've been baptized with the Holy Spirit and power, we're now ready to be introduced into the spiritual warfare that surrounds the things of God and then uh, to be successful and victorious in it. So up to now, God has fought completely for them. Now He is going to uh, use them to fight through them. So this represents growth and progress in their, in their life and God's use of them represents growth in, in our spiritual 
uh, development uh, also. So here is uh, Joshua told to choose some men, go out and fight. Moses is going to go up to the top of the mountain with the rod of God uh, in, in his hand. And so uh, it was that uh, Joshua did as Moses said to him, fought with Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the top of the hill. So the battle is engaged that morning. Moses, uh, Aaron, Moses' brother, Hur, we don't know anything else about him except he was a very, very trusted leader of Moses among the children of Israel. They go up on the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held his hand, uh, up his hand, that Israel prevailed. Now, you'll notice all the way through this thing, uh, God has told him, uh, he, uh, uh, he has told uh, uh, Joshua there in verse 9, he's going to go up and hold the rod of God up up on the mountain, uh, but uh, as the narrative goes through here, God disregards the rod and, and focuses on Moses' hands. And the reason is, is that to raise hands uh, on a mountaintop was, uh, that was prayer. The Bible talks about raising holy hands to the Lord. So Moses isn't just up there like raising, you know, like just kind of a superstitious thing. He's obviously, uh, it, it's, a, it's a symbol of intercession. He is interceding to God uh, related to the battle. So he goes up on the top. When he holds up his hand, uh, then Israel prevailed. When he let his, uh, down his hand, then Amalek uh, prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So he's 80 years old, right? So even if you weren't 80 years old, you can't hold your hand up forever. And uh, so he needs some help. So they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur then supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And so the intercession ongoing there, and so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge uh, of, of the sword. And so uh, this holding up of the hands, representing uh, intercession there, and uh, in this event there's this incredible mixing of the physical, Joshua had to conduct the battle down below on the battlefield, but it was the, the battle was being determined by prayer up on the hill. And, and I, don't, I don't know what the lines are in all of this. I just know that in this situation, in many situations in life, it isn't a matter of all physical activity being necessary for the victory to be won. There must be prayer coupled with it, but at the same time, prayer alone is not enough in the situation. There must be prayer and then becoming physically engaged in the situation. Both things are needed for that victory over the flesh, that victory uh, in, in this thing that God has, has called us into. So it's not an either-or, it's a, it's a both. Uh, when you look at this whole picture here, and it's a beautiful picture of them holding up uh, Moses' hands. Moses is, is the leader there. He gets tired. Leaders do get tired and, uh, and all. And so you say, how in the world can I, you know, hold up the hands of, of leaders in, in the work of the Lord? There are many, many ways, but certainly, supremely, I think it's intercession, praying for them. Leaders need prayer. Leaders need prayer. Moses needed help in his prayer. He needed support in what God had called him uh, to do there. The importance of intercession. I know I'm prayed for in this body. I'm no Moses. But it's the kind of little thing we're doing here. 
and I know people pray for me. And, uh, and that's how we move forward on things. And everybody, all of us, everybody serving and ministering here, we all need uh, prayer. And so the, the importance uh, of that prayer, no one can do it alone. We all need each other. God has designed it that way. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. God makes note of it. We've defeated the Amalekites in one battle. God is not going to forget what they've done here and he declares that he is going to utterly wipe them out for their wickedness in this situation and of course that will happen uh, later under uh, King David later in the history of the children of Israel. And Moses built an altar and he called called its name, The Lord is My Banner. Following the victory, he uh, calls this altar that he builds. He is immediately giving the Lord credit for the victory and before the people also. And it's Jehovah Nisi, The Lord is My Banner. In other words, you know, we fight under him. And uh, he's, the, he's the banner that's led before us in, in, in battle. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation so he gives thanks to for the for the promises of God related to victory over the Amalekites and thanksgiving to God for fighting against the Amalekites and and giving him uh, victory in that battle well let's stop there tonight and we'll pick it up in uh, chapter 18 uh, next week and let's ask the worship team to come forward and point us to the Lord related to these different things that we've looked at uh, tonight